0: We're going to be in Acts chapter two today. Uh, we're going to start on page nine ten, page nine ten in the pew Bibles. Acts two twenty one. Here's the brief summary of what we've already seen in Acts. After the resurrection of Jesus, he appeared to his disciples many times, giving them instructions and encouragement and challenge. And then, right before he ascends through the clouds to be with the Father. He gives them final marching orders where he says you're to go out into all the world and you're to make disciples of me and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you and to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he promises that he will be with them then for all eternity. He then says, wait before you go. Wait in Jerusalem, he says, for the promise of the Father, speaking of the Holy Spirit. So Fifty days after the resurrection of Jesus, there's a whole bunch of extra people in Jerusalem for the feast day of Pentecost. There are 120 disciples of Jesus hiding in a room waiting for the promise to come true. In Acts 1.8, we get the reminder of the promise. And then we get the fulfillment of the promise. So Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as the divine plan of God works out, many of those places, people have come from those places to Jerusalem at that particular moment in time. So if we look at the map that we looked at last week, these are all named communities, In the book of Acts, chapter 2, that we know there were representatives there in Jerusalem at that time for the the feast of Pentecost. And so there's this jump starting of the spread of the gospel by actually bringing people to Jerusalem for the outpouring of the Spirit, which happens in a miraculous and astounding way. Acts 2, 1 through 4, we read this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, 120 of them in a room. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So Luke tells us that there's this this sound, this noise of a rushing wind, and then there's this greater sound where... These disciples of Jesus who have just received the Holy Spirit are given this unique and special opportunity where they can speak in languages that they have not yet learned. We learned last week that these are natural human languages given to them as supernatural abilities. So people from those different regions of the map, they hear the noise, they come together, they're like, what's going on? I, I can hear them in my own language. They recognized them as all being part of the region of Galilee as just kind of regular common people. They wouldn't have known all these extra languages and they were astounded at what's going on. Somebody from Arabia can hear them in their language. Somebody from North Africa in their language. Somebody from Turkey in their language. And they realized this this is a strange working of God. What is going on? So the, the population of the city comes together and Peter stands up to give his first sermon. He's a fisherman. He's a blue-collar guy. Yeah, he's been with Jesus for three years. He's heard all kinds of messages from Jesus, but he stands up in order to preach his first sermon. And I'm sure that even though the Spirit was just coursing through him and he was feeling alive and excited, I'm sure he was also very afraid. In that sermon, he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Joel in order to explain what's going on because Joel foretold that day and the the Spirit being poured out on all people, young and old, rich and poor, male, female, Jew and Gentile, just all of the different categories fell apart on that day and the Spirit of God was poured out on all of those kinds of people. Peter ends, again, with quoting from Joel... And he says this at the end of what we looked at last week and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved i'm not going to go through the argument that i did last week about what it means to call on the name of the Lord and be saved but i will jump off of this and say the people who were listening to peter say this they had a question who is he talking about who is the lord is he talking about the god of the old testament the god of the jewish people the jewish people are monotheistic we as christians are monotheistic one god but we have we have the extra understanding from the new testament from the new testament that our our one god exists in three persons father son and holy spirit the jewish people were without that understanding and so when they hear those who call upon the name of the lord shall be saved, they are wondering, is he talking about the God that we know and have known for thousands of years, the God that the Old Testament refers to in how we would pronounce Yahweh? Or is Peter talking about this Jesus guy that we've heard a lot about? Peter's going to very specifically answer this question for them as we look at our passage today. But first, I wanted to show you guys a short video. i, I I love man on the street interviews. Sometimes it just makes me feel really smart at how the regular people answer questions. And I'm like, man, I knew the answer to that. What's wrong with these people? But sometimes it's just really uh, amusing. And sometimes it's shocking and kind of eye opening. So I went looking for a man on the street interview where people are just asked the question, who is Jesus? I wanted to show you guys just a minute and a half of this. So let's go ahead and roll that, Matthew. figure? I don't know. I think he was just a person. I don't know. Just a normal person, like us. He was a selfless person. I have no clue. He was a man. I think he was a marketing genius because he got people to believe him. I don't, I don't think he's the son of God. I don't, I don't believe that at all. If David Copperfield was in the day of Jesus, he would be Jesus. pretty sure he existed. Like, I'm not going to say that he didn't exist. He was God's son, but so was Gandhi, and so was Muhammad, and so was, you know, we're all God's children. Jesus is someone I pray to. Well, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, um, and... He, to me, is the, like, symbol of just ultimate forgiveness and ultimate love. He's sort of that, like, constant figure in my life. Jesus is also Isa in Arabic, and he was a messenger as well. He was just extremely enlightened, like, religiously and morally. Was somebody that um, just tried to um, impart wisdom on others and um, make the world a better place. I think he saw something that a lot of people didn't see and still don't see in others. And I I think that's just a lot of... Love and and hope. All right. If we did that in Versailles or Dark County, we'd get different answers. Maybe some similar answers. I don't think we would have the guy with the birds sitting on him, though. I, I, he's got to like go to the park every day, and then his bird friends come and and sit on him. But anyway, who is Jesus? Or in the case of the Jewish people listening. To Peter, who is this Lord that he's talking about, that we can call on? If you open your Bibles to Acts 2.22, page 910 in the Pew Bibles, we're going to see how Peter answers this question they're asking. We're going to go through it verse by verse. We're going to ask ourselves, what is the Bible saying? What are the words actually saying? What do they mean? So what's the point of it? And why does it matter? What are we to do about that so let's go into this acts 2, 22. Peter continues, men of Israel, hear these words: Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. I'm just kind of pause in the middle of the sentence there. so Jesus feeding the five thousand, Jesus uh, healing the leper, healing the blind man, healing the bleeding woman. Um, restoring people to life, Uh, Lazarus dead in the grave for for four days, he's essentially reminding the people, you you know about Jesus. Many of you here, you got to witness, or at least you've heard from your cousin, about how Jesus came into your village and he healed these people and he did these amazing, miraculous things. Peter is saying that God the Father did these through Jesus, God the Son, and he's basically doing these as signs, he's holding up signs to testify to who Jesus is and the validity, the importance of Jesus' message. So Peter says, You know, you know Jesus, you saw these things, you know the stuff that he's done. Verse twenty three. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the tone changes very quickly there. Now remember, this is Peter, who said, I'll never deny you, Lord. And then the night of Jesus' betrayal, Peter just turns into a chicken and runs away. And this chicken now is standing in front of thousands of people. Says, you crucified Jesus. He's, he's filled with this boldness that he didn't have before. He's basically saying to the Jewish people, look, the Lord gave you his divine law. He didn't give that to other nations. He gave it to you. And yet you, he says here, are lawless men who killed Jesus. But don't miss the first part there in verse 23. Delivered up according to what? The divine plan and foreknowledge God. This is speaking of the sovereignty of God that God rules over the universe that He has plans, and nothing can mess up his plans. when it says foreknowledge it's not just meaning that like God the Father can look ahead in time and see how things play out but can't actually do anything about it It's not like the death of Jesus on the cross was an accident or a surprise to God or a failure of his plan, or like God just sits back and says, "Well, I tried." But it didn't work. They killed my son. That it's not a simple knowing of the future, it's a determining of the future. And we see that here with the idea of this divine plan, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So Peter picks a fight with them, says, You crucify the Lord. Like them's fighting words, right? And then he quickly switches gears again and says, but it was the divine plan of God. So is is it God's fault? Or is it the lawless people who crucified Jesus' fault? It's both. The sovereignty of God and the, uh, the free agency, we would say, of humans complement work with each other so there's this divine definite plan from all eternity past and yet we as humans we're not simply robots we're not characters in a great computer simulation where we think we're actually making choices but really somebody's already programmed it all in that is not the case for us we do have choices we are responsible for our choices and yet this death of jesus is the divine plan of God. Peter himself, when he writes what we would call the first book of Peter, first Peter, he says this, similar words. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So the plan, God the Son coming, offering himself as a substitute for our sins on the cross, that plan is there in place before the foundations of the world. So this goes back before the fall of Adam and Eve, right? So It's not that God says, I'm going to make the world, and you know, he makes all the stuff, and we finally get Adam and Eve together, and he brings them together for the first marriage, blesses them, and says, you know, "Go, f- be fruitful, multiply, rule over the earth, and then they messed it up, and then God's like, oh, now what am I going to do? That's not it at all from before the foundations of the world, Peter says, the plan was foreknown. The role of Jesus, the Son, was foreknown. And he became it became visible, manifest to us in these last times for our sake, but it has been the plan all along. Verse 24, back in Acts. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and then we're going to go into this, this quote, but notice in verse 24 here, we've got this idea that it is impossible for death to hold Jesus. We say, well, wait a minute. If it was possible for death to claim Jesus in the first place, for him to die, why is it impossible for him to stay dead? You know, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. How can Jesus be killed in the first place, and yet he can't stay dead? It's because the plan from the beginning of time was that he would die, that he would conquer the grave, rising on the third day, and that divine, definite plan cannot be thwarted. So it is impossible for Jesus to remain in the grave because the plan from the beginning, from before the beginning, the foundations of the world, is for him to rise on that third day. God the Father raises God the Son on that Sunday morning, and history changes after that. So then Peter's going to go on, and he's going to quote from David, King David, thousand years before Jesus. Now he's already quoted a few times from King David. In chapter one, he quoted from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 as they were trying to figure out how do we replace Judas. Now he's going to quote from Psalm 16. So this is written a thousand years before Jesus is written by King David, and it is both a, a psalm that describes the situation that David was in. And looks forward to a much greater situation. It's a prophetic psalm. So this is what David said. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption." You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Hopefully, as you read that, you can see that this cannot be simply David speaking about David himself. There is more going on there. David died. David was buried. David's body decomposed. David's body is no more. And so, if this is just talking about David, well, verse 27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption, meaning corruption of the flesh. Now, in the English Standard Version that we're working off of here, we get capitalized, Holy One. There's no such thing as capitals in the Hebrew language. This is... Uh, English interpreters trying to help us understand that this is a prophetic psalm looking forward to Jesus as the Holy One. Peter's going to pull this together for us, so he says this in verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. I love this because basically he's saying, look, you guys know that David died. You know where he is buried. You've all been on your eighth grade field trip to the capital where you've seen all the important sites, including the tomb of David. He says it's still there. Now there is in Jerusalem a site known as the tomb of David. None of us really know for sure if that is the tomb of David or not uh, in the years since then. Jerusalem has been occupied by different armies and the history has kind of gotten broken into pieces. But you could go today and you could pay some money and you could see a location that at least purports to be the tomb of King David. These guys actually knew for sure where that was. And Peter Biggs says, you've been there. You got the t-shirt saying that you were there and you've, you've done the field trip thing. You know what's going on with this. David is dead. And so, David is not simply talking about himself in this song, he's prophesying about the future. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet, speaking of David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So he's saying, David knew, because God had promised him that there would be a great descendant on the throne of David in the future that would put everything right, that Messiah figure that the Jewish people have been waiting for. David knew that was coming, and he's prophesying in this about that coming Messiah. He didn't know the name of Jesus. He didn't even know the Greek word Christ that would mean Messiah and sort of become Jesus' last name in our Vocabulary, but he knew that somebody was coming as a descendant of his that would sit on his throne, and he knew, according to Peter in this this psalm that he's he's prophesying about this, and that this person would not be abandoned to Hades, and his flesh would not see corruption, so even though Jesus dies on the cross and he's you know he's whipped and he's beaten and he's pierced, and he's got the crown putting holes in his head and all that. His body rises on the third day, and it is still his body. It's, it, it's not all decomposed and worm-eaten and, and got maggots coming out of his eyes like in scary movies or anything like that. It's his body, but like upgraded to version 2.0. So he's still got the holes in his hands for Thomas to stick his finger in there, right? And yet he can appear and disappear at will We see this in the days after the resurrection, like where the disciples are in the upper room and suddenly, poof, Jesus is there. He just doesn't even have to open the door. He just is there. And so it's his body, uncorrupted, left with the scars, and yet somehow upgraded. David, Peter says, is pointing to this reality. Verse 32. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that, we are all witnesses. Who's the we? It's him and the other 11 apostles standing with him. Conceivably, the the rest of the 120, because you've got the Marys, you've got some other women, you've got other guys that have been around. There's this group of 120 at the beginning of the day, and they say, we are the witnesses. We know that this is true. We have seen and talked to and touched and eaten with the risen Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 6 actually tells us that there are 500 people that Jesus appeared to at different points between that resurrection and that ascension. So lots of witnesses. At that moment, Peter yells to the crowd, this Jesus God raised up, and that we are all witnesses. He meant it. And he's putting an X across his chest saying, I am now a target. Because those of you who allowed Jesus to be killed at the hands of lawless men, some of you are going to want to kill me now for saying this. He doesn't know how this sermon is going to go over. It actually goes over really well. He at this point is willing to be killed for the witness of Jesus. Someday he would be killed for that, but he just wants his people to know that he knows without a doubt because he's seen, touched, heard, eaten with, he knows that Jesus is a lot. Now, it's nice for Peter to go into all of this, but he still hasn't explained this whole crazy language thing, which is what brought everybody together in the first place. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit... We've got all three members of the Trinity there in that verse, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Jesus has received the Spirit, has poured it out on the Christians, and they have now been able to speak with these languages that they did not learn. That's why you guys came here. This is what's going on. I'm explaining to you this is the Holy Spirit given by the Father to the Son to us. That is what is happening here. Now, these Jewish people staunchly monotheistic. They have no framework for this idea of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It would actually take years for Christians to, to try to like argue out and iron out a good understanding of the mystery of the Trinity. If it is confusing to you, join the club. It's confusing to all of us. It is a mystery. He doesn't give them a lesson on this. He simply states The Spirit is given by the Father to the Son and then given to us, and that is making for these languages. Remember, last week we saw that the Jewish people, some of them assumed that the apostles must be drunk, and that's why they're talking in these other languages. We said, that doesn't make sense. Alcohol makes you dumber. It doesn't give you the ability to speak languages that you have never learned, right? So they're still trying to figure out what is going on here. Peter's going to try to answer it more. He's going to quote David again, this time from Psalm 110. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right, my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What is Peter doing with this? Okay? He's not explaining the languages thing. He's back to Jesus. He's trying to establish that Jesus is Lord. He does that by quoting David in Psalm 110. To us reading in the English, it's not particularly clear what he's saying. Luke writing in the Greek, it's actually less clear for us because Luke, when he translates Lord, see Lord twice there, the Lord said to my Lord, there's this single common Greek word for Lord, it's curious. and he uses it both times. So the curios said to my kurios, sit at my right hand that's what it is in Greek. But if you were to go back to David, writing the book, the the Psalm 110, in the Hebrew language, we get the key to the argument that Peter is making. So if if we were to go back into the Hebrew, we would see that there are two different words in here. Let's go to the next slide, Matthew. So in English Bibles, the clue is normally done in this way. See how the first Lord is all caps and the second Lord is just a single caps? That is meant to give you the clue that that first Lord and the second Lord are two different words. So you guys are familiar. Let's go with the next slide here. So y H W H there's no vowels in the Hebrew, so we add the vowels and we say Yahweh. The ancient Jewish people would not actually pronounce the name of God, but God gives himself this name in the Old Testament. He says, You guys want to know how to address me? You want to know how to differentiate me from all the false gods that the people are making up? I am Yahweh. I am that I am. And so that becomes the name, like the proper noun name for God. The next one, the second Lord there, is a different Hebrew word, Adonai. And that's just a, that's just a general term for Lord. So like if we were in England and we you know, went to meet some fancy guy in a castle, we might refer to him as my Lord. Okay, that'd be the same thing as saying Adonai, right? So in the Hebrew, the way this would read is, Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter is trying to communicate here by looking back at, at, at uh, David writing Psalm 110 that there is, there is something significant in this language. Jesus himself actually picked a fight using this very verse when he was talking to the Pharisees. If we go back to Matthew twenty two, forty one, 41, we read this. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Usually they're the ones questioning Jesus trying to trick him. He's now turning the tables on what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. So who's the Messiah? Who's the promised one to come? The right answer from the Jewish world is that he's the son. He's the descendant of David. Because, as we saw earlier, David received a promise that the the Messiah would come from his line, would someday sit on his throne. So they give the right answer. He doesn't mean the son, like the next generation, but just a descendant somewhere down the line. Verse 43, this is Jesus still. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit, so that's an affirmation of the, the inspiration of even the Old Testament, even the songs in the Old Testament are inspired. So David says in the spirit, as it calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then, this is Jesus' argument, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus shut them up with that. Jesus is saying, look, if the Messiah is simply a son, a descendant of David, then he's dependent on David. Because if you don't have David, you don't get the line of David to get to the Messiah. And so David would be greater than the Messiah if the Messiah is simply a son of David. There's a bigger reality going on here. Jesus doesn't actually tell them, hey, I am that Messiah. I am the Lord over David. I'm the creator of David. That has to be figured out later but that is the point it's it's like george washington would not refer to biden as my lord right for different reasons but basically he would he would look at we would look at george washington as the source of the presidency and it flows downstream from there the jewish people thought of david as higher as the the archetype of this Messiah because he was, the Messiah was descended from him, but yet Jesus is so much higher. He is, in fact, Lord over David. So Peter has made this case. He has said from last week, we are in the last days as Joel prophesied. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on us as Joel prophesied. This miraculous speaking in other languages as a result of the Spirit. It's nothing that we did. It's just the Spirit of God doing his thing. Jesus walked among us performing miracles which prove that he is God in the flesh. You crucified him. God the Father raised him from the dead on the third day. Jesus ascended to rule alongside God the Father. David prophesied about this future coming king in the line of David who is actually much greater than David. So that's his argument so far. Therefore, here's the point of the argument, verse 36 back in Acts, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, and then he sticks it to him again, whom you crucified. So let everybody in, in my, my voice area hear this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And Christ. This is the main point of Jesus' sermon. They came wanting to know about the languages. The answer to the languages is the Holy Spirit has been poured out. And yet, the main point of the sermon is not about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always pointing to the Father and the Son, He's not drawing attention to Himself, He's always pushing attention to the Father and the Son. And so, it makes sense that Peter's sermon pushes everything towards the reality of who Jesus is. Let's be clear about what he said. He does not mean that Jesus was just a man who was then promoted by the Father to the, age, the, the level or the, the titles of Lord in Christ. When he says, God made him to be Lord in Christ. He's not saying that the Father promoted a man to that position. We can understand this because we say things like, um, boot camp made him a man. And we know that it's, it's not, we, what we mean is he was kind of boyish when he went in and then he became a man, but he was, you know, at least if he's legally of age, he was a man going in to boot camp, but he like, became really a man because of the toughness of boot camp. We don't mean that he changed genders or that he was a dog and then he became a man, right? We know what it means to say that the boot camp or this hard thing or whatever it was really made him a man. And that's the sense of what's going on here that's being revealed to us the actual um, nature, the identity of who Jesus is. He, he was this beforehand. It's now more obvious to us after this fact that he's, he's fully showing himself for who he is. So he says, Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. The Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, or we would say Savior. So we could say Jesus is Lord and Savior. One of the young ladies in the video said, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And we put those words together there. To say that he's savior or Christ or Messiah is to say that he's rescuer, that he came, that he offered himself as a substitute for us, dying on the cross in our place, taking the penalty that we deserve for our sin, and that he offers us through his grace as a free gift, forgiveness of our sins, and restored relationship, peace with God. We were lost. We were uh, in need of rescue. I read this story uh, this week. Um, I love going down to places like Red River Gorge in Kentucky. Uh, Hank and Mary were there just a few couple months ago. There's a a particular arch that I I like visiting. It's called Princess Arch. It's really easy to get to. And A few years ago, there was this landslide on the far side of Princess Arch. So there's this big place that used to be flat, and now it's just kind of fallen off. And this week, a four-year-old boy fell off of that. And he fell down various ledges, some even 30-foot drops, for a total of 70 feet down to the bottom. His dad then goes climbing down after him. like No ropes, no harnesses, just climbing down to get to his son. Scoops him up, knows there's no way to get back up to the top, and so he just starts heading north. If you've ever been to Red River Gorge, the suspension bridge that's across Red River, he's heading for that. Rescue, Wolf County Search and Ref- Rescue is, is operated. Uh, they meet him before he gets to the suspension bridge. They check out the son. He's got bumps and bruises and scrapes. That's it. From falling 70 feet off this cliff. It's just amazing. How much more amazing is it that Jesus comes to rescue us and we got a whole lot more wrong with us than the bumps and bruises of falling off a cliff. Our fall is so much more dramatic. We are dead in our sins. And yet he comes as the rescuer for us, scoops us up, carries us into relationship with the Father. That's the idea of Jesus as Christ, as Savior, as Messiah, as Rescuer. He's also Lord, according to Peter. Lord and Christ. This is the idea that he rules, he reigns, he is the King of kings, he is the Lord of lords, he is God the Son, he's the ruler, the boss, he's the master. In America, much of the Western world, we as Christians have this silly idea that we can have Jesus as Savior but not as Lord. And we can say, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for giving me forgiveness, giving me you know, reconciliation with God the Father and eternal life. Now you just leave me alone, butt out. Let me live my life the way I want to. I will be in charge. I am the Lord of my own life. Thank you, Jesus. That is insane. If you try to like stick that together with the witness of the New Testament, where Jesus reigns and rules as Lord over all of us. It's hard to map, wrap our minds around this, uh, partly because we we live in a society that just looks across the ocean at the whole king and queen thing that happens in the old world. We don't, we don't really experience it or understand it. We've got elected officials who are supposed to be accountable to us, so we don't think of them as Lord. So it's hard for us to wrap our minds around this idea that somebody, just by the nature of who he is, has authority over us. Not elected. He doesn't like, come in and win this military victory in order to establish himself. He doesn't prove himself by going up the ladder or, becoming the president of the company. He just, Jesus says, it's who I am. I am Lord over you. That's really hard for us to wrap our hearts and our minds around, and yet it is true. We can say, yeah, we like Jesus as Savior. But Jesus as Lord, that's that's a different story. Now, the people who hear this, surprisingly, they respond really well. They respond with repentance. They realize they have it all wrong. They've been living upside down, and they respond this way, 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. This is another thing the Holy Spirit does. He doesn't just give you the ability to speak languages you never learned. He convicts you of sin. He gets down. He does surgery. cuts into your heart. The Holy Spirit's at work here. He so said, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That is the right response. I I am lost. I am full of corruption. I need a Savior. I have not submitted to him as Lord. I've tried to be Lord of my own life. What am I to do, brothers? Please tell me. Verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So, you guys are familiar with this? The response that all of us should have to hearing the good news of Jesus is repentance and faith. In this case, the faith is showing itself through baptism. We go back to first chapter of Mark, we read how Jesus bursts onto the scene, and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and believe the gospel. When you hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus as Savior and Lord, the correct response is repentance and belief. In this case, he doesn't want to leave it as a a private thing. If, if Jesus is your Savior and your Lord and nobody knows about it, you should question whether or not Jesus is your Savior and your Lord. And so Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Go public with it. If Jesus is claiming lordship over your life and he is regenerating your soul and forgiving your sins, then here's a pool of water. Actually, Jerusalem has a whole bunch of pools in it. So let's, let's get you guys together. Let's get you baptized publicly saying, I belong to Jesus. Amazingly, they respond positively to this. Verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, if we got everybody together who basically considers VCC their home, we would have about 120-ish people or so, roughly twice as many who are in here right now. Start the day with that. End the day with the entire population of sales added to your group. Can you imagine how disruptive that would be the challenges for just organizing administrating that'd be crazy and we're going to see just a short while in acts that it is a serious challenge that the church explodes and grows so fast adding a thousand people on one day within a few paragraphs we're going to be at five thousand people the holy spirit is at work through fisherman peter preaching his first sermon it's, it's not an amazing, great sermon, right? He probably looked back on it and he said, boy, I, I stuttered through this, I forgot this, I, I went to go around here. It didn't happen because it's the first time, right? It's a rookie. And yet God works through that sermon in amazing ways. I would love it if no matter how good or how bad a particular sermon is on Sunday, that you guys were so open to the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you, that you would hear and receive the Word of God in life changing ways each Sunday. That's what's happening here. They add three thousand people, baptizing all in the pools of Jerusalem. Is Jesus both Lord and Christ? could be neither, right? You need to come to him in repentance and faith, saying, I'm lost without you. I need you to rescue me, Jesus. Please say, call out on the name of Jesus. You will be saved. Are you living in that uh, deceptive, imaginary, because it doesn't really exist, no man's land between Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord? Are you like, I want to keep control of my own life. I want to be my own boss. I want to go to heaven, but Jesus just butt out right now. Why continue that way? Are you really being that good of a Lord of your own life? Is it working out as great as you hoped it would? Why not surrender to the one who truly is Lord of your life and of the universe? Why not give him all that you are Lord, thank you for saving me. I give myself back to you. I give myself in obedience. I give myself in in sacrifice. I will live for you. You are my Lord, and I am not. Maybe that's where you are today. Let me encourage you. Jesus is not only a good Savior. He is a good Master. You will be mastered by somebody, even if you think you're master of yourself. You will be mastered by somebody. You cannot have a better master than Jesus, who gave his life to save you. Let's pray. Lord, as we come and sing our closing song together, I pray that you would cement in us these truths that, that we need you, that we are dependent on you, that we are nothing without you, that it is in you, in Christ alone, that we have any hope, that we have any way of being rescued and any purpose for the rest of our lives as we live as your subjects. So Lord, as we sing these words, as we proclaim that it is in Christ alone that we are saved, that we are justified, that we are set free, that we are sent out, that someday we are glorified with you in heaven, Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would show us um, how we have resisted your lordship in our lives, Lord. While it would be appropriate for us to come to you just in, in trembling and regret and say. I have sinned. I have been the Lord of my own life, and, and I, with terror and trembling in my voice, confess that to you, Lord. That would be appropriate, and yet you welcome us in with a, a graciousness and a gentleness. You, you pardon us for that sin of our selfishness and our self ruled life, and you. You embrace us with joy as a son coming home, as a man coming to his senses, as a as a woman who finally sees clearly the reality of you as Lord over our lives. So Lord, help us to trust you, help us to, to not only trust you as our Savior, but to trust you as our Lord, help us to live resting in the fact that you are master over all of this, in Jesus' name.